Just briefly in passing before we get started, I know we have um, an online audience uh, that listens to uh, these messages. If you're listening at a later date through the Sermon on the Mount series, you may notice one is missing. I was trying out some new sound equipment uh, two weeks ago in my last sermon, and things didn't really work out for me. So in God's wise providence, uh, you missed out on that one, which maybe should encourage you, if you're not already, to make an effort to attend these services in person. Uh, I look at the online audience, and, and I know some of you live in Texas. I'm not asking you to move, but for those of you who are a little bit closer, uh, maybe you can make those efforts. I want to invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the fifth chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 5. We are continuing our, as I just mentioned, our verse-by-verse series through the Sermon on the Mount, and I want to invite you, if you are able, to please stand with me for the reading of the Word of God. Beginning in Matthew chapter 5. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father God, Father, we come to you who is holy. Father, we come to you who is goodness. Father, you are the very expression and essence of light and goodness and virtue. Father, in you we rejoice. In you we find our delight. Father God, I just pray that by your grace and by the work of your Holy Spirit tonight, as we enter in to the study of your word, that you would uh, remove our affections and our thoughts from earthly things. Though they may not be sinful in and of themselves, we want to focus wholly upon spiritual realities the things which you have preserved in our word for our edification. So, dear God, I pray that you would assist us in that work. I pray for the power of the Holy Spirit as I undertake this great task. I just pray that your truth and your word is honored. I pray that your name would be glorified in this worship service. It's in the name of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. Thank you, and you may be seated. Jesus said the words... Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. We are progressing now to what is the third beatitude and has hopefully been drilled into your head by now if you've been attending these services, is the reality that there is an order, there is a flow to the beatitudes. The beatitudes are like a a golden chain of blessedness. These are not just random statements that would look good on a coffee mug or a throw pillow. 
uh, that Jesus is just haphazardly throwing out there, although that is commonly how these things are treated. Jesus is a skilled craftsman when it comes to the art of oratory instruction, and that just means that Jesus is a really good teacher. He knows what he's doing. And so there is a progression. There is a flow of thought to these things, and to adequately understand them, we have to understand them in context. Now, I mentioned that this is the third beatitude that we look at tonight, but I am going to briefly give you a little preview of the next few sermons. In my study of this text, I identify eight beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, stretching from verses 3 to 10. Now, if you look at verse 6, verse 6 I believe to be the turning point, if you will, when it comes to this text. Verse 6 is like the hinge upon which all these things turn. Now, the primary thing that we have been doing as we've been observing these Beatitudes is the way that grace works in a man's life, or a woman's life for that matter. The Beatitudes are essentially a description of who a Christian is. We saw that in the first place, in verse 3, when grace comes upon a man, he becomes poor in spirit. He is broken over his sin. In verse 4, that same man is mourning over his sin. He is in tears. He's crying out to the Lord, saying, Lord, you and you alone have I sinned against. Now in verse 5, which we'll be looking at tonight, he has become meek. And we will get into that and what that means, of course, but I would like to first submit for your consideration the idea that in verses 3 through 5, you have what I would call passive traits. Passive meaning that these are things which have happened to the man. Then in verse 6, you have the hinge. You, you have the, the turning point. After he's been poor in spirit, mourning over his sin, and, and then meek. In verse 6, he is hungering, he is thirsting for righteousness. And this is the most amazing thing. And it's like, it's like the key that helps you unlock the rest of the passage. He is hungering, he is thirsting for righteousness. And that hungering and that thirsting will lead him to produce what I will call, in contrast to passive, active traits. In verses 7 through 10, meaning these are things which the man with grace is now positively doing. They are being produced out of him like the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Now that then is hopefully an adequate understanding of how meekness fits into these beatitudes, how it fits into the chain. And so now that we have that established, the next question is rather basic. What here is meant by meek? What does it mean to be meek? Now, I, I often find it helpful when answering questions like this to first uh, say what it does not mean. Well, firstly, the simplest thing I could say is that meekness is the sheer opposite of pride, arrogance, and self-righteousness. The meek man does not boast of his own worthiness or of his own accomplishments. The meek man does not count himself more worthy than another. Well, that much is rather obvious, but we also have some misconceptions about meekness that we need to clear up. For starters, 
Meekness does not mean weakness. The meek man is, is not the man who refuses to put himself into a tough situation. Well, how do I know this? Well, remember, the Beatitudes are a chain. The, the man who is meek in verse 5 is going to become the man in verse 10 who is persecuted for righteousness' sake. So the meek man, by, by definition, by just looking at the context of the passage, the meek man is not the weak man. He is still willing to stand up for what is right. He has conviction. He is willing to speak the truth. To put it in another way, to be meek does not mean to be spiritless. The meek man is often a very passionate man. Jesus Christ himself, who said these words, and as God, I think he has a right to define them, was a meek man. And yet we see that when he sees the temple, the house of his beloved father, being perverted and scandalized by merchants and and money changers, we read in the Gospel of John that zeal, that is passion, that is energy, zeal for his father's house consumed him. You get that? You you see, oftentimes zeal is talked about like it's a bad thing, like it's a, a pejorative to be called zealous. And yet, when Jesus Christ saw the things of God, saw the name of God being blasphemed, being utterly disgraced and disrespected, zeal consumed him. And he made a whip of cords. He physically drove people out of the temple. He flipped over the tables of the money changers. You see, in these actions, what do we have? Well, we have passion. We have boldness. We have conviction. We have energy. We have spirit. We have a righteous anger, and to use the words of the psalm that is attributed to him, we have a man who was consumed with zeal. And yet, this is a man who is described as meek, mild, and humble. As a matter of fact, he's not only described as those things, Jesus Christ is the very perfection of meekness. He is the very perfection of humility. He is the very perfection of modesty. But you see, to use the words of Martin Lloyd-Jones, meekness does not mean flabbiness. Jesus was a bold man. He was a confident man. He stood up for what was right, and he did so perfectly. You see, unfortunately, even you and I, when we stand up for what is right, we, we don't do so perfectly because of our flesh. You see, sometimes our righteous anger can be laced with sin and become unrighteous. I think it was Augustine who said there is a pound of flesh in every good deed. What once was zeal for the Lord can become nothing more than self-righteousness, pride, and arrogance. Those things which are the very opposite of meekness. But that never happened with Jesus. He always acted Perfectly, He always acted righteously, always in perfect accordance with the will of His Father. And so yet we see that the perfect man, the meek man, Jesus Christ, multiple times in the Gospels, we see Him doing things and saying things that the vast majority of modern-day Christians would call unchristlike. 
And that is sadly because most of our understanding about who and our theology about who Jesus is uh, comes more from children's Sunday school drawings than it does the Scriptures themselves. Currently on Sunday mornings, some of you are in this study. I'm teaching through the Gospel of John, and it's it's just, just a riveting book of Scripture. And, and I remember how thrilling it was when we got to uh, chapters 7 and 8. Uh, chapters 7 and 8, those two chapters, they, they, they are just exciting. They, they're, just, they're just thrilling. I mean, I mean, if you need an extra boost of energy, just read John 7 through 8, and you will get excited, I am sure. To give you a brief summary, in chapters 7 through 8, Jesus basically starts off by saying that the world hates him. And he didn't mean that in a sort of teenage, nervous, breakdown, sort of melodramatic way. No, he meant literally, the world actually hates me. The world actually hates him. And he says that the reason the world hates him is because he testifies about it that its works are evil. Well, Jesus, he eventually goes up to Jerusalem and he starts testifying about them that their works are evil and that unless they believe in him, they're going to die in their sins. Notice, Jesus has already identified why it is that people hate, hate him and are mad at him. It's because he speaks the truth. He tells them that their works are evil. In other words, Jesus was a preacher who's willing to look you in the eyes and tell you that you are a sinner. And yet, this is the reason why they hate him. Now, Jesus knows that this is going to upset them, And he still does it. And he still does it. He goes up there and he starts doing this, and lo and behold, things start escalating. People start getting angrier and angrier at him until eventually Jesus tells them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins For unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Well, eventually he escalates things some more, saying, You, speaking to the Jews, are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. And he says, Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them, is that you are not of God. And then eventually Jesus makes one of the most powerful statements in the entire New Testament. At the end of John chapter 8, verse 58, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. He knew the reaction that would insinuate. What did the Jews do? Well, they picked up stones to throw at him. Now, I mention this why. My point is simply that meekness does not mean that we are cowards, does not mean that we don't stand up for the truth. And to go against the uh, general ethic of our culture, meekness does not mean that we don't offend people. Remember, in verse 10, those who are meek are eventually going to be persecuted for righteousness' sake. Kind of like how Jesus had stones thrown at him for righteousness' sake. Now, caveat, we need to remember Jesus 
was sinless and we are not. For instance, Jesus in chapter 8 also rhetorically asks, which one of you accuses me of sin? Now, that is not something that anyone in this room can do. No one in this room can, can stand up here before this pulpit and say, which one of you accuses me of sin? The line is going to start forming immediately. Now, why do, I, but why do I bring this illustration up? Well, the reason is simply this. Just because we are told to be meek, we are told to be peaceable, we are told to be humble, does not mean that we are not passionate and zealous for the things of God. Now, as already mentioned, you and I have a battle that, that was foreign to Jesus, and that is abiding sin. We always need to remember that. We need to keep a close watch on our hearts at all times and pray that God would keep our motives pure. But even then, it does not mean that only Jesus is allowed to be bold, that only Jesus is allowed to be passionate. Look at the prophets of the Old Testament or look at the apostles in the New. I mean, look at Peter in in the book of Acts when he says, we must obey God rather than men. And you see, why is this so relevant? Well, my friends, beloved, we live In evil days, the pressures against our faith are strong. That means now is not the time for weak men. Now is not the time for spiritlessness. Now is not the time for cowardice. Now is not the time for silliness, for trite things that will not matter in eternity. The fact that someone on earth is upset with you or doesn't like you, that's not going to matter in eternity. What will matter is, were you willing to preach the gospel to that person? Were you willing to allow a situation to become slightly uncomfortable for the sake of that person's soul? That is what will matter in eternity. And what does that require? That requires boldness. That requires a love For God, that requires the grace of God, the power of the Holy Spirit to equip us in these things. And I pray, may God in this generation raise up men who will not be afraid to speak the truth boldly and firmly with a heart that loves God and loves the people to whom we are speaking. Now, I say these things so that we don't fall into the trap of misinterpreting what it is meant here by Meekness, but understanding then what meekness is not. It's not pride, it's not arrogance, it's not self-righteousness, and it's also not flabbiness, it's not weakness, it's not cowardice, it's not spiritlessness. It's not those things, so that's the negative side of it. But then on the positive, what is it? What what actually is meekness? Martin Lloyd-Jones says, Meekness is essentially a true view of oneself expressing itself in attitude and conduct with respect to others. He goes on to say, To be meek, in other words, means that you have finished with yourself altogether and you come to see you have no rights or deserts at all. You see, recognizing that the Beatitudes are a chain, they are a progression, once you have become poor in spirit and you've began to mourn, over your sin, you realize 
who you truly are. In our last session, I used the illustration of finding oneself and how our culture doesn't understand what that really means. When you've truly found yourself, you will realize that you are very, very small. That there is nothing in you to boast of or to be proud of. Now, if you truly understood the gospel, if you truly understood grace, this would not be a hard thing for me to explain to you. If you truly understood the doctrines of grace, you would see that no man stands before God acquitted on account of his own righteousness. Meaning, contrary to popular thinking, no one goes to heaven because they're a good person. There has only ever been one truly good man to ever walk this earth, and that man was the sin-bearer for the rest of us who would believe. The only reason that God would ever, ever even consider letting you come into life on the day of judgment is if you are covered in the righteousness of His beloved Son, Jesus Christ. And so because of that, there is nothing more absurd than a proud Christian. An arrogant or a self-righteous Christian is a contradiction in terms. The Bible uses an illustration of two brothers, two twin brothers, that is, Jacob and Esau. Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. And when Paul interprets that passage in Romans chapter 9, he says that God's decision was made before either had been born and had done anything good or bad. What does that mean? It means that Jacob was loved not because of his own goodness, not because of his own righteousness, but because of the decision of God's unchanging and eternal will for the purpose of his own glory. Before Jacob had done anything good, before he had done anything bad, God did not look down through the corridors of time and saw that Jacob would be good and then chose to save him. No, before Jacob had done any good thing, anything good or bad, Jacob, I have loved. And that is exactly the same for every Christian alive today. God did not save you because you were good. God did not save you because of anything within you. There was nothing in you that was more appealing to God than anyone else. God did not save you because you made all the right choices and someone else didn't. God had no obligation to set his mercy upon you. God did not need to do it, and you did not deserve it, and so God did not have to do it. He chose to love you. And if you understood that, those would be the most amazing words that I could ever say to you. And that is exactly how it is. Do not think for a moment that the reason that you are saved and someone else isn't is because you're a better person than they are. If that's what you think, then you do not understand grace and you do not understand the gospel. Jacob, I have loved. Not because Jacob was more desirable than Esau. What are you talking about? Esau was the fairer of the two. He was bigger. He was stronger. He was the man's man. And yet, who got God's blessing? 
Jacob. Why did Jacob get God's blessing? Because that's what God wanted to do, because he is God and he has that right. Jacob, I have love. Now, what should that inspire in your heart? Meekness. Meekness. Do you see how powerful the love of God is? Do you see how it can change a man when a sinner comes to the end of his rope and he looks at his past sins? He looks at the lying, stealing, the fornications, the lust, all the different things. What does that man deserve? He deserves what God gave to Jesus on the cross. Why did God give it to Jesus on the cross? Because he loved that sinner. Not because the sinner deserved it. That is the gospel right there. Problem is, as you well know, the vast majority of people who call themselves Christians don't believe what I just said. Even though it comes straight from the Bible. Perhaps that, that is why we don't see the sense of lowliness. We don't see the sense of meekness because we don't understand sin. We don't understand how bad it is. We don't understand how much God absolutely despises it. I mean, if it required the death of His Son, who was His beloved, daily His delights, forever the world was formed, if that's what sin requires, it is serious. It is serious, and it is a big, big thing. Understanding the love of God in this sense ought to produce meekness in your heart. There ought to be lowliness. There should be mourning, not pride, not arrogance, not these things that we see which are so common, but a trembling before the throne of the Almighty. You know, I, I listen to some of these songs and, and I read some of these things and I hear some of these preachers and I get filled with what I, what I sincerely pray is not a fleshly spirit of malice but what is indeed a righteous anger wrought within me by the Spirit of God and I am just so astonished to see that the vast majority of what it calls itself modern Christianity is just so focused on me. It's just so focused on me, and it's just so focused on man and on people and not on God. You know, what, I mean, what is the gospel message to some people? Some think people really genuinely believe that the gospel message is this, that God is, he, he is going to move all the mountains in your life, and He's going to slay the giants and these different things. Listen, the only giant that you need slain is the giant that's inside of you, and it's called sin. It is that couple hundred pounds of disgusting and revolting, vile, despicable, unnerving, atrocious, wretched, horrid, evil, wicked thing called sin, which still dwells in your members, in your flesh. And if your Christianity is more focused on you accomplishing your goals and your dreams and your visions and making you happy, then you don't have Christianity. Where is the meekness? Where is the poor in spirit? Where is the mourning? Where is the tears over sin? What are the prayers that most Christians pray? Oh God, just, just help me get through. Just help me do these different things. Why do you care? You have sin. You're a sinner. You're gross. You're disgusting. God hates your sin. 
You need to pray that he would vanquish your sin and crush your sin and destroy your sin and conform you to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. That is the promise of the gospel. It's not these things that we get so focused on, that we get so infatuated with. Where is your love? Where is your desire for righteousness? Your hungering and your thirsting for righteousness, as verse 6 says. Where is the holiness that you ought to crave? The Bible says, without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. And, and we don't care. We don't care about that. Because we don't understand sin. Now, why do I say all these things? Well, it's because Jesus Christ said these words, blessed are the meek. And you see, meek people, people who are through with themselves, who they have saw their sin, they have saw who God is, meek people are not overly concerned about their own happiness. Meek people are not overly concerned about personal success or gain. They found themselves, all right. They saw themselves in the mirror of God's law, and they did not like what they found. The Holy Spirit convicted them, made known to them their sin, and now they could not care less about their own levels of pleasure and personal satisfaction. All they care about now is Jesus Christ and everything that Jesus Christ has done for them. And they are trusting in Jesus Christ by faith to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Do you see how Christ-centered Christianity ought to be? Not about me. Not about me. You see, Christians love Jesus Christ. They, they love Jesus Christ. That's what gets them going. That's what, that's what drives them. That's what Christians are concerned about. And that is just the reality. And knowing who Jesus Christ is and knowing who they are themselves makes them meek, makes them humble, makes them modest, not, not proud, not, not overly assertive, but, but modest. Sure, if you offend God or His truth or His people or if you hurt others in general, the meek man will stand up and he will raise his voice like a trumpet and make righteousness known because that is what his master, Jesus Christ, would do. But if you offend him or offend his person, water off a duck's back. He will not be perturbed about it at all. Why, why, why should he care? He does not live for himself. He lives for Jesus. He will be quick to forgive, actually. Uh, the Puritan Thomas Watson said, Your neighbor in offending you but trespasses against a man, but you in refusing to forgive him trespass against God. That right there is the thought process of a meek man. He was through with himself a long time ago. He no longer lives for himself, but he lives primarily for God and for others. You know, I used to be part of a church that had, had a lot of issues. Now you say, well, there is no perfect church, and if there was a perfect church, it'd be imperfect the moment you joined it. I get that. But what I'm saying is this, this is a church that would, had a lot of like, real problems, um, and honestly would probably differ quite a bit from my own doctrine and, and practice, but there, there's one thing that I remember that, that I actually do appreciate. 
Um, at one point during the church's existence, their mission statement, or whatever you want to call it, uh, read something like this. It said, honor God, serve others. Now, I always, I've always found that very attractive, uh, very appealing, and, and in my mind, I think that is just the perfect description of a man who is meek. You ask me, what is a meek man? I answer, he is the man who honors God and serves others. There is nothing in there about oneself or, or, or anything like that. The list of priorities puts God in first place, others in the next place, and everything, by the way, that follows under God, it's not like it's a separate thing than God. All of his other priorities are seen in relation to God. Even when he serves others, he doesn't do it so that he can have his picture on, on the internet or anything like that. He does it because he loves God. When he loves his wife, he does it because he loves God. When he loves his children, he does it because he loves God. All, all the, the other things are seen in relation to the supreme being. Now, I realize, obviously, obviously, we need it. It's important that you take time to rest and, and take care of your health and, and these other different things. I'm not saying that you, you know, don't rightly and correctly take care of yourself in a certain sense. And, I mean, you're even allowed to do things that you just enjoy. But, you see, the meek man can do that because he has his priorities figured out. You see, even when he does things he enjoys, when he you know, sits down at his favorite meal and, and has his you know, drink or whatever it is, it's, it's like not like he enjoys the meal for the sake of the meal, but there is a praise and a glorifying to God in light of it. And the book of Deuteronomy, there was a law, a provision, that if you could not make it to the uh, temple to offer up your sacrifice, God said, take yourself uh, an animal, either an ox or a sheep, and uh, some wine, and take it out by yourself, eat the meat, drink the wine, and God says that your enjoyment of those things is a pleasing and acceptable sacrifice to him. But you see, my, my point is, even the th like something as innocuous and, and as you know, normal as enjoying a meal, there is a bit of divinity in it. There's a bit of spirituality in it. It's seen in relation to God. He doesn't eat the, the flesh of the animal for the sake of the flesh. He does it, and there's, there's a spiritual transaction between him and the Lord going on there. So what does that mean? That means the meek man, his priorities are straight, they're figured out, and God is number one. So the meek man, he will lose sleep if it means time spent in prayer. The meek man will allow himself to go hungry if it means that you can eat. The meek man will miss out on other things that he might come to church. And the meek man will go cold if it means that you can have his jacket. To sum it up, in its essence, meekness is when we have a correct understanding of oneself in relation to God, and that that gets expressed visibly to others. Pride, arrogance, self-righteousness, boasting, and things of that nature are far, far, 
far from the meek man. Now, it does not mean that the meek man is the weak man, but he will not be overly concerned with seeking out justice for himself. He trusts that vengeance is the Lord's, that the Lord will repay. But you see, when the truth of God, when the word of God, when the worship of God or the people of God are being offended, the the man who is meek and who otherwise would never lift up a finger, he will stand up. And he will stand up not for his own sake, not just because he wants to be a jerk or anything like that. We've all seen the people who call themselves street preachers who think that they're doing the will of God just because they upset people in the street corner. Well, I mean, maybe you're just being a jerk. Like, that could be part of it. But you see, he stands up for righteousness' sake, even if it means being persecuted for righteousness' sake. Now, hopefully a correct idea in our heads of what meekness is it is now necessary to look at the particular blessing that is associated with it. Jesus said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. But what does it mean to inherit the earth? Uh, For starters, we should recognize that Jesus is not the first one to make this particular statement. Uh, Although the phrase, inherit the land, is found uh, in numerous hundred places throughout the Old Testament, The particular use of this phrase comes from the 37th Psalm, Psalm 37, where the phrase inherit the land is used five times. Psalm 37, uh, we're not going to get through the whole thing, uh, sadly, I know some of you probably wish we would, but Psalm 37 verses 10 through 11 says, in just a little while, the wicked will be no more, though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Now, Psalm 37 can be classified as an imprecatory psalm, which an imprecatory psalm means that it contains imprecations. What's an imprecation? A a curse against the enemies of the Lord. And, And over and over again in Psalm 37, you have this contrast between the righteous and the wicked. My brother John will often say there's two kinds of people in this world, the saved and the unsaved. There's no one, no one is neutral in relation to God. You're either in Adam, slave to your sin, or you're in Christ, raised up to righteousness. There's no, no one is a morally neutral agent when it comes to God, by the way. Well, at any rate, you constantly have this distinction being made between the righteous and the wicked. The righteous, who are they? They are the the ones who trust in the Lord. Verse 7 says, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. While those who delight in the Lord are given the desires of their hearts, according to verse 4, the wicked are destroyed. Verse 13 says, The Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. Now what does this communicate? Uh, that there are essentially two paths that you can go by in this life. You can walk amongst the righteous, who are the righteous. They're the ones who believe. Abraham was not declared righteousness by his works, but the Bible says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So the righteous, they're the ones who believe. They're the ones who trust in the Lord. 
So you can be on this path, or you can be walking with the wicked. The wicked are destroyed. They perish. The Lord laughs at them, is what the text says, knowing that his day is coming, that he will destroy them. The righteous, they are still. They are patient. They look around this world and they see how the wicked prosper, but they trust and they wait on the Lord, knowing that the Lord will reward his beloved. The psalm ends by saying, The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. Now, it would be a wonderful thing to go in much more detail into that psalm, but I just want to briefly give you the context of it so you can understand, because really Jesus is quoting an Old Testament passage right now. Uh, which says, in just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. You see, essentially, that phrase, inherit the land or inherit the earth, what it communicates is the fullness of God's abundant blessing and salvation. Now, when David a thousand years or so before Christ, initially penned that psalm, his audience was probably mostly just thinking about the, the land as in the nation of Israel. But when we look back on this passage from a new covenant perspective, where we have the rest of Scripture, we realize that ultimately God's promises to his people would not be confined to one part of the Middle East. But in Zechariah chapter 9, we read that when the Messiah comes, the true King of Israel, humble or meek, mounted on a donkey, who is Jesus, that he would not just reign in the physical nation of Israel, but that his kingdom would be from sea to sea, from the Euphrates to the ends of the earth, that he would speak peace to the nations. Now, some may say, Logan, that's talking about a future millennial kingdom. Really? Where are you sitting right now? You're sitting in Vermilion, Ohio a land that was unheard of to the men whom Jesus spoke to. You don't think he is going to fulfill the promise of Scripture which says that he will bring the message of the gospel and salvation to the nations, to the ends of the earth? But that is what we see. You see, as always with these blessings, there is a twofold promise. There is like, it's like the now and the not yet. There is a blessing that we receive and we experience in this life. Blessings that you have, like literally right now, although there, we expect the fullness of God's blessings to come. There is a, a sense in which we have already inherited the earth. We are in the process of inheriting the earth. And one day we will inherit the earth. Now, in what ways have we already inherited the earth? For one... The Bible says that we've been given all things. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 tells us that in Christ, all things are ours. And the things listed are life, death, the present, the future, and lastly, the world. Now, what does it mean that all things are mine in Christ? Does it mean that I can reach in your pocket and take your wallet? Obviously not. It means that we do not need to fear we do not need to be worried 
or be anxious about things that come from the earth. Why? Well, you've inherited the earth. It belongs to you. You see, the way that, what, what Paul's, uh, the way that he makes his point in that passage is by saying this. All are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. You see, what was going on, uh, just historical background, is in the Corinthian church, you had people dividing. Uh, some people, they were aligning with Paul. You had other people, they were aligning with Apollos. But what Paul wants them to understand is that, listen, you're not of Apollos, you're not of Paul, but you are of God. Therefore, it's, it's useless to quibble about these, these, these little things. And so the larger implication of that is, since you are of God, you belong to God, who is sovereign over all things, then Apollos and Paul are merely being used as instruments by God for your good. Then he says, it's the same with life. It's the same with death. It's the same with the present. It's the same with future and the whole world. You see, all of those things are on the sovereign dominion of the Lord God. And if you are God's beloved child, the scripture says he is working all things for your good. What that means is, since you have inherited the earth in this sense, then the things of the earth should not discourage you. They should not cause you to be stressed or to be anxious. Are you a child of God? Then, then all these things are being worked for your good. God is that powerful. I, I am not ashamed at all to make the statement that God is God and He is sovereign. And if He, and if he not because of your own righteousness or goodness, just like Jacob, for Jacob had done anything good or bad, God loved Jacob. If God has set His mercy and His love upon you, and the same God who sovereignly called you out of darkness into His marvelous light, if He has that sovereign power to do that, then he has the sovereign power to work all things in your life for your good. That is a brilliant thing. That's a lovely thing. One of my favorite sayings of the Lord Jesus Christ is in John chapter 14 when he says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. I, I just think that that statement right there is the perfect cure for any anxiety that you will ever have. And, and it's, it's free. You don't, you don't need a prescription for that. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe in Jesus. You see, once you see all the different things in your life in relation to God, knowing that in Christ all things are yours, then you know that all things are working for you. You have inherited the earth. Then you should be able to find it easy to be content and to rejoice. You may look at the trials and the tribulations in your life and you may ask of them, where did you come from? They will answer back, why? I came from the earth. Now with grace working in your heart, you may calmly reply, ah, the earth. I have inherited the earth and since that is from whence you came, that means you belong to me and are only being used by God for my good and my betterment. Then you shall be able to rest easy and contented. I just make this comment in passing. I realize that 
rates of depression and anxiety are, are skyrocketing in this nation. You know what can cure those things? A changed heart, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Before we run to the doctors to fill up our bodies and, and our minds with these different drugs and, and these different things, or before you run to smoking pot or whatever it is to, to cure these things, listen, none of those are the solution. But the solution is this. It's in the gospel of Jesus Christ to change your heart, to give you peace with God, a peace that surpasses all understanding. That, that's the solution to the epidemic of, of depression and anxiety in our culture, by the way. Now, we have inherited the earth, but in what way are we still currently in the process of inheriting the earth? Well, like with the last point, we need to understand these things in relation to Christ. Uh, the same thing applies here. Now, legally speaking, I am a citizen of the United States of America, but in reality, before I belong to any earthly domain, I am a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, and my king is precious, and he is sweet, and he is lovely, and he is meek. And he's also awesome in the classical sense of that word. He is mighty, he is powerful, and he is strong. He has been given a kingdom that is everlasting, that will not fade away. And as I've already mentioned, his kingdom is not confined to one small stretch of land in the Middle East, but, and, and nor is it confined to the borders of the United States either. I realize that there are some people who think that the kingdom of God is synonymous for the United States. It's actually not the case. You see, his kingdom began to spread 2,000 years ago, and it is going to reach to the very ends of the earth. You say, Logan, you're a fanatic, you're crazy. Look at the world. Look at how dark things are. Listen, I'm not saying this of my own accord. I'm not saying this because of whatever. I'm saying this because I just read the scripture and I believe the promise is in there. The Bible says that Jesus Christ, Jesus, when he was raised from the dead, what did he say? He said, all authority... And heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, teaching them, uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them the word in the Greek is literally discipling them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now, when Jesus said those words, he had a small group of followers in one small part of the globe. Here I stand 2,000 years ago, just across from Lake Erie, a, a part of the globe that was unknown, that was unknown to those men. And you know what Jesus has been doing for the past 2,000 years? He hasn't been hiding. He hasn't been neglecting his church. No, he's been building his church. And he is still building his church by the way, and it will spread to the ends of the earth, and he will speak peace to the nations. So he is still in this process. The Bible says that he is reigning, and he must reign until he's put all of his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. 
You see, Jesus Christ is currently in the process of establishing his rule and authority over the United States, over China, over Kenya, over Australia, over Brazil, over Russia, and all nations because the Old Testament said that he would, that he would bring peace to all nations. That is what has been foretold of him, and he will spread his kingdom there. The lovely, lovely, lovely passage in Isaiah chapter 9 Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. You know what it says? Of the increase of his government, there shall be no end. And we look around and we say, well, look how bad the world is. Look how bad the world is. Listen, don't you realize something? We worship the Messiah who was crucified. You think that some dark times, some dark days ahead are signs of failure? Not at all. There was a saying, post tenebris lux. What does that mean? Before darkness, light. Do you know what God promised to our father Abraham so long ago? That he would be the father of many nations. Now the Bible teaches that the true children of Abraham, those who are heirs of his promise, They are so not because of their blood, not because of their ethnicity, for there is neither Jew nor Greek, but all are one in Christ. It has nothing to do with their race, their bloodline, their ethnicity, everything like that. It has everything to do with their faith. My brethren, brethren, are you a believer in Christ Jesus? Are you a believer in the Jewish Messiah? Then you are an heir of Abraham's promise. And that promise speaks of many, many nations. Why? Because Jesus Christ is going to rule them all. He rules now in his sovereignty, but he will one day rule in a fuller sense as the message of the gospel goes forth and the Holy Spirit brings about revival and reformation in the hearts of men. I realize that many of you have been taught to be afraid or to be weary when it comes to the end times and things like that. It's not what I read in my Bible. My Bible tells me that my Savior is victorious. And what we do, we get so afraid. We look at the news. We look at the things going on in the world and we get so discouraged and we say, oh, we're all just just going to hell in a handbasket. What does Jesus say here? What does the psalm he is quoting from here say? In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the earth and delight themselves in abundant peace. And you say, oh, the politicians, oh, the sex traffickers. Pastor Cliff this morning was talking about the, the, the pornography industry and we just, we just look at these things and and let me tell you something. Those people, what are they doing right now? They are boasting. Oh, how their bowls are full of pleasure and laughter. They've, they've got it all right now. The Lord laughs at them. He laughs at them. He laughs at their folly, at their foolishness, for he sees that his day is coming. You see, it's not the wicked who inherit the earth. But that's what so many of us think. We think it's the evil, those who hate God, who are just going to run things until maybe the rapture comes or something like that. 
It's not the case. Don't let men deceive you into being frightened about this world when it belongs to you. And I realize it's so easy to look at the dark days ahead of us and get so discouraged. You know, I, one of my favorite stories in church history is about a man by the name of Athanasius. Now, there is a saying, which I absolutely love, Athanasius contra mundum. What does that mean? It means Athanasius against the world. You see, uh, there was a man by the name of Arius who spread false teaching that there was a time when the sun was not. He taught that Jesus Christ was merely a created being, but that he was not the eternal God, which is what the Scripture teaches. And you know something? Nearly all the bishops in Christendom fell to this Arian heresy. And you have one man, Athanasius Contramundum, against the world, standing firm for the truth of Jesus Christ. Though all the world was deflecting, and that, I feel like maybe that's the situation we're in right now. All the world is turning from Christ. But the Lord always has his remnant. What does he say? He says, I have reserved for myself 7,000 who will not and have not bowed the knee to Baal. You don't think the Lord still has his remnant? He doesn't still have his church? He does. He does. He still has us here. And are there many enemies against our faith and against the kingdom of God? Yes, there are. There sure are, but Jesus Christ will personally destroy them all. The promise is that all of his enemies will be made a footstool for his feet. Now, there is a sense in which we've already inherited the earth, we're in the process of inheriting the earth, and we still will inherit the earth in the fullest sense in the future. Revelation 21 talks about the new heaven and the new earth where the people of God will dwell with God in their resurrected bodies. You know, I'm not trying to get too far off, but you know, we never think about the glory of the resurrection. We never think about how amazing it's going to be unless the Lord should return now, which, which he can. He, he is sovereign. I leave that to him. But let's say you know, we die and there's a whole stretch of time before Jesus returns and, and the dead in Christ are raised and, and everything like that. How glorious will it be after that period of time to then return to our bodies, though they will not be corrupted as they are now, but they will be glorified in the fullest sense? I mean, is that not, not exciting? I don't know. Anyways, there is going to be a time in which we will be in the new, new created earth. There will be no more pain. There will be no more tears. There will be no more mourning or grieving. All the last remaining corruption and of sin will have been done away with. Jesus will have destroyed it all. The former things have passed away. And Revelation 21, verses 7 through 8 says, The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So again, I remind you, it's not the wicked who inherit the earth, 
but the righteous, the ones who believe. The meek shall inherit the earth. Now in closing, we have contemplated both the grace of meekness and the blessing of inheriting the earth that Jesus attaches to it. You may ask me then, well, Logan, how do I attain these things? You've told me that it's not of my works. You've told me that it's not of my righteousness. How am I made one of the meek? Well, what was the key thing we stressed when it comes to meekness? It was knowing oneself and one's sin in relation to God. This is a grace that can only be mediated to you by the Holy Spirit, and you partake of it by your faith. We already said it earlier. God has worked this way the entire time. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham did not earn God's favor. He believed God. It was counted to him as righteousness. You partake of it by your faith. You realize that your sin and your corruption and your wickedness was so bad, so horrid, so despicable that the only way you can be forgiven of it is if God sent his only son to bear it in his body and suffer under his wrath for it. That is the penalty and the punishment of sin. Well, gospel means good news, right? The blessed hope is that God did send his son into the world to die as a propitiation for the sins, and the Bible says, of a great many, of a great many. And how is one united to this promise? By faith. Faith in who? God. Not yourself. Not by trusting yourself, not by trusting in your own goodness, not by trusting in your own righteousness, for that is the very opposite of meekness. Be through with yourself. Empty yourself of all pride that you may be filled up with Christ. Whoever comes to him and believes in him will find him to be a perfect and complete Savior. For though he died, he rose again. He rose again and he is sitting on his throne right now as we speak and he ever lives to make intercession for all those who draw nigh unto God through him and he is reigning, all authority has been given to him and he is going to spread his kingdom, the rule thereof, over all of this world and would you not be willing to join him? Lastly, I'll give you one more thing. The Puritan William Perkins had this Lovely thing to say. He said, For keep Christ sure, and whithersoever you are sent, you are upon your own ground. For the whole earth is yours, and in Christ one day you shall possess it, when all tyrants are banished into hell. Now, being on your own ground, what need do you have to fear? Let us pray. Father God, Father, you are holy. Father, you are perfect. Father, in you we rejoice and in you we take our delight. Father God, I, I just I thank you for your love. I thank you for your mercy and I thank you for your truth. I pray that these things would not just remain in our heads, between our ears, but that you would do a mighty work of grace in the hearts of many here. I pray that your lost sheep would, would hear the shepherd's voice and would, and would come to him, dear God. Father, as we close this period,
period of worship and we enter into our business meeting, I pray that you give every individual at this business meeting a spirit of meekness. I pray that everyone, when they speak, would do so with a heart that loves God and would not be overly concerned with their own interests. Father God, as we contemplate the the future of our church and of our ministry, I pray that thy will would be done. Father, have your way with us. Lead us in the right direction. It's in Christ's name that I pray.